I'm Rusty Williams, and this is Forming the Future, a series of conversations exploring the intersections of education, innovation, and physical space. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Alec Resnick. Alec is director and co-founder of Powderhouse Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts. Powderhouse is one of a handful of winners of the XQ Super School Project, a nationwide organization focused on developing and funding innovative models for 21st century learning. Alec and the team behind Powderhouse won a $10 million grant from XQ to bring their concept for a new kind of school to fruition. He's a graduate of MIT and has served as a consultant for many years, helping schools develop STEM and project-based learning programs. Alec, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. It's been, uh, we've tried a few times to get together and we met in person probably, what, six months ago and had a really fascinating okay. conversation. I've been looking forward to, uh, to following up on this podcast. Uh, so welcome. Yeah, mutually. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on the, uh, on the I can't say success, because you guys are really kind of pushing down the, the path uh, towards implementation on what's called Powderhouse right. Studios, yeah. and you've received a grant, yeah. a super school grant. So maybe just a quick yeah. overview of what Powderhouse is, what the grant does, and kind of where you're heading might be a good place to start. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've been running a small science education nonprofit here in Somerville for the past decade or so. And on the heels of a pretty divisive charter school fight, maybe four or five years ago, the mayor approached us at the behest of a handful of families about the idea of maybe opening some form of school or school within a school in Somerville. And uh, starting around then, we made our way down that design and approval path under what's called the Innovation Schools Legislation in Massachusetts. And out of a three- or four-year process, we've ended up with a vision for a school in many ways. But at this point, we think it's kind of better understood as an attempt to look at the, the best practices and environments in the creative workplace mm-hmm. and environment, whether that's a research lab or ad agency or architect studio, and figure out what it means to translate a lot of those elements to a workplace with youth that you know, also happens to be under certain regulatory and other constraints like the public school system. But uh, that means all sorts of things in terms of everything from schedule, where you know the day runs from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. for kids and isn't broken down into periods or traditional subject-based classes. Uh, there isn't organization by age. There aren't traditional letter grades, things like that. But also in terms of the, the content and the type of work that people do. So we've chosen for a variety of reasons to ground a lot of the projects and the, the work that people do in these two tool sets of computation and storytelling. So building things with computers and, and telling stories. Hmm. And uh, that, you know, isn't at all organized around math or English or social studies the way that a school might normally be set up. Mm-hmm. And that had a lot of ramifications, especially when you're opening an in-district school. And so part of what the, the XQ grant lets us do, the super school grant lets us do, is uh, be a lot more intentional about the way that we hire and onboard staff to develop some of the tools and capacities that they'll need, not only to work in an environment that emphasizes some unusual fluencies, namely computation and storytelling, but also um, in an environment where they're expected to work pretty differently with youth. And so there aren't really, you know, graduate school of education, graduate schools of education out there training people for the type of school that we're looking to set right. up. And, uh, and the grant helps us both with a bunch of logistics, like being able to sign lease on a space and things like that, but kind of most substantively helps us think through how we can make onboarding and training a really significant part of kind of changing the design space of what's possible. Uh, at, a, at a high school level in a district environment. And so we're, we're just about to embark on that path now as we begin hiring and, and designing that onboarding year. And so we're, we're very fortunate to, in, in many ways, but one of them being to end up in a position where we have some financial flexibility to redesign that training and onboarding experience. 
That's great. So I, I feel very fortunate. I, the, one of my earlier uh, conversations on this podcast was with Ted Dentersmith, and he wrote a book called, oh, sure. yeah. um, you know, called the Most Likely to Succeed and the movie Most Likely to Succeed. And everything he said was sort of railing on the the teach to a test approach that uh, nearly every school sure. has now. And so here I am speaking sure. with you. You're you're going from yeah. from criticizing to actually doing, and that that's always a really <laughs> challenging step. So uh, kudos to you in that. Um, but it's fascinating yeah, to think about lucky. some of the things you you're you're changing and some of the things you're altering to make a whole new model for education. Yeah. And, and and one of the things you noted already is it longer not longer days, different days. They're 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Yep. yep, that's right. And all year long, yeah, year long, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, we basically feel like in a lot of ways um, we want learning and work in school to look and feel more like a traditional job, not just because that might better prepare people for those types of environments, but also because we think there are a lot of things that end up pretty unsustainable about a traditional school environment, where whether because of how much people are asked to cram into a traditional you know, 180, 184-day school year, there's often a sense of kind of a marathon or a sprint either to the standardized test or to the next vacation in different ways, both for staff and for young people. And then, especially for adolescents, um, I think it's really striking that while everyone might agree that the research says or that their experience with their kids tells them that asking somebody to get up at 6 or 7.30 when they're 15 uh, only adds stress yeah. to their life and um, really compromises outcomes from a systems perspective or an educational perspective that still most schools haven't been able to actually make that shift. And so both we wanted to make sure that there's significant time for our staff who will be coming in around eight to co-plan and co-design together because they're working on a much more tightly knit team. They aren't in kind of individual classrooms on their own, uh, but also because we felt like we wanted a setup that was sustainable and really well matched where to the extent that's possible, the design should kind of concentrate all the ingredients that you need to to make this work, given how much trouble people have had mm -hmm. making this type of thing work, especially in, in an urban environment. And so it seems like if something is as simple as making sure that people are showing up well-rested and happy and not resentful at minute zero, yeah. uh, it's something that we could do that, that, that it was worth it. Well, after having some uh, high school age kids, I can tell you that that is definitely a challenge, just getting getting up at yeah, 6, yeah. 6.15. Uh, it's it's really yeah. hard at that age but yeah so there's one other thing so like that makes a lot of sense but then you're you're going year round which i'm not sure makes quite as yep. much intuitive sense sure well a lot of what we're we're looking at is we feel like uh if we set aside school for a moment one of the ways that you can think about work is that i think one of the biggest distinctions between service industries say like coffee shops and knowledge work like an architect studio or research lab is and obviously this is a spectrum but that on the service end of things, one of the things that distinguishes it is that somebody's accounting for your time. So somebody is saying, at this minute you're doing X, at this minute you're doing Y, mm -hmm. and uh, your responsibilities are defined in large part by that. Now on the other end of the spectrum, your schedule might not be defined, but your deliverables are, right? And so there are plenty of companies, especially tech companies or other creative companies that say, you know, you can come in when you want or you have a flexible vacation policy, but you still have maybe quarterly objectives or performance review or your direct report of somebody. So there's some other structure that's, that's helping you figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. And part of that's about um, creating a, a work environment that's competitive, that's attractive to people. But part of it's also, I think, an acknowledgement of a lot of the ambiguity uh, and a lot of the kind of managerial realities of creative work. And so 
when we say that the school is year-round, I think another maybe clear way of saying it is that the school is open year-round. Mm-hmm. And that's very different from saying that we have curriculum, curricula that have structured all, you know, 200 and I think it's 27 days that will be, that will be open. And it's more that the school and staff are operating year-round and that people are working year-round, but people can still schedule the same types of summer vacations or other vacations uh, okay. with the understanding that it has an effect on basically how quickly they're making their way towards graduation. I got so it. again, instead of thinking about it as a series of grade levels culminating after four years by default in graduation, we say, this is kind of the, the body of work that you do before you graduate. And some people might come in and feel like they can do that in two years. And some people might decide to take six years or seven years, but it was very important for us to design around something that didn't certainly didn't penalize for people, penalize people for taking longer uh, because we feel like there are lots of reasons why you might be going deeper. Or you might be doing things that don't necessarily show up as progress towards graduation, but still might be obviously valuable to, to everyone involved. Right. And so rather than thinking about it as kind of a treatment that you apply for 184 or 227 days a year, we think about it as like a resource that's always on in a community or an environment that you're coming to to make progress and meet your own goals. Some of those goals are obviously informed by things like graduation requirements, but we're hoping that the vast majority of those goals are personal and professional and academic goals that mm-hmm. youth and their families set with our support. Right, so, that uh, you... so it's, it's less about... Um, we think everyone needs to work longer and harder and more about we want to design a system that lets people engage it in a way that's much more personalized or individualized. Interesting. So you, you answered really the key question that came to my head is like there, obviously you learn a lot from school, but you also learn a lot from the canoe trip you take in the backwoods of Canada yeah, or the exactly you know, hike, right. hike you do yeah. or whatever. So that that's not those opportunities to unplug and disconnect and do those sort of totally unstructured things okay. are still there. Uh, so and, that, and even not only are they still possible, but we'd like to support them. So right. specifically, you know, it might be the case that we are supporting somebody in doing an equivalent of summer abroad or when somebody says, I'd really like to go on a summer vacation and we might be able to find a way to take what they were planning on doing by default and going deeper with it or helping them to prepare for it in a meaningful way or enriching mm-hmm. artifacts that they might collect over the course of that. But we really don't see anything as extracurricular in the sense that we see all sorts of opportunities for growth. And we really see our job as supporting people in that growth and playing a little bit of a role of a, a matchmaker and interface to some of the regulatory requirements that are um, that are involved in defining what good public education looks like. Wow, fascinating. So uh, to take the possible negative of that, I mean, so that sounds great. You're basically uh-huh. enriching every experience you might want to pursue and everything that you might want to do. Uh, but you also just yeah. mentioned this could take three years or could take six years. Uh, what if you sure. what if you end yeah. up over time with a lot of six year plan people? Wouldn't wouldn't both the the townspeople of Somerville and the and the the backers and everything else and this, the teachers yeah. say, wait a second, we got we, we got a problem here. This is not <laughs> going the way we want it to go. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I and mean, it it really does depend on the stakeholders. So for example, there are plenty of families who I think would be uncomfortable with that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are plenty of families who either because it, they're not used to it or because they feel like it's really very contingent, but maybe they feel like for their kid that that five or six or seven year period is more of a reflection of maybe they think of it as laziness, or they think of it as a lack of direction, right? There are, I think, plenty of families would be comfortable with it, but we really think about it on a person-by-person or family-by-family basis. And so roughly the way that we're approaching it is that, you know, we really think of the school in some ways as kind of a resource allocation problem. So kind of the same way that in one of our idealized version of a family doctor or a family attorney or a 
trusted religious advisor is, where there's a person who has some expertise and sometimes resources, and you go to them and they responsibly help you in whatever the situation is. And most of those folks might come in in the moment of in a moment of crisis or in the context of a problem. But we think that kind of the same type of relationship can be helpful in an ongoing way, much mm-hmm. the same way that parents are showing up and in different ways are deciding, like, you know, my kid seems to have a real interest in piano lessons. I'm going to support mm-hmm. that. Or they seem to have a real interest in the space and uh, space exploration. So I'm going to buy books for that. Or I'm going to investigate camps for them, things like that. We really see staff kind of like a steward. And so the reason I mention this is because there's always going to be Um, I think different appetites for leveraging that type of relationship versus leveraging traditional academic experiences. And sometimes that might be driven by time where somebody might say, great, I've had a really wonderful experience in this environment for three years. I see what I have uh, ahead of me to graduate. And because I want to graduate, quote unquote, on time, I want to graduate in four years, I'd like to have basically a more traditional academic experience in year Mm -hmm. four so that I can more kind of precisely hit whatever's standing between me and graduation. And that's a very different, um, a very different process than somebody who says, you know, because I feel like I really know what I want to do next, and maybe I want to go to a particular college, and or I know that I'm already getting college credit, and I'm not that worried about the, the high school experience. I really want to compress this into two years, and I really want somebody not who helps me do cool projects, but who helps me work through that really quickly. That's very, very different from somebody who says, you know, what I'm not sure what my next step is, and in in high school by default, unfortunately. There are all sorts of folks who fall through the cracks in the sense that they might be a C or maybe even a D student, and uh, especially if they're you know well-behaved or have good relationships with teachers, they can come to their fourth year and graduate, and then the, the public school system in many ways kind of washes their hands of them, mm-hmm. and I think you, you've just postponed that problem. And so I think one thing that will be important to us is, at first with families and then with other stakeholders, to have that conversation of when somebody's taking five years with us or six years with us, is that better understood as the six years they would have spent anyway yeah. <laughs> getting to the point yeah. that they're ready for their next step if they're lucky? Because if that's the case, there are lots of folks who, you know, they feel maybe they don't even feel forced into college, but they feel like maybe that's the default thing or the thing they should do. But because they go either before they're ready or without proper support, they flounder and then they leave. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, for example, you know, the high school featured and most likely to succeed, high tech high is only now getting to the point that they're be that they're able to collect and report on the types of data about persistence through college that uh, really dominate people's questions about success. Because at this point, there are lots of models that get lots of people into college, uh, which is not to say it's an, an easy feat, but it's to say that that's not unprecedented in, right. in urban education. But uh, what is largely unprecedented is figuring out how do you make sure that people persist through college. And we don't by default assume that everyone needs to go to college, but I think that kind of the upshot of that is that we want that transition to be a smooth one and an intentional one. And so rather than construing it as a process where everyone goes through X years and then they're ready, we say, you stay with us until you're ready yeah. and then you leave and we support you in that transition. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a conversation we're very comfortable and confident that we can have effectively with families. But like you said, there are other, there are other people involved in public education, there are taxpayers, there are superintendents, yeah. school committees and so on. And I think for them, uh, in different ways, it's going to be a conversation about a mix of like accountability. So mm-hmm. for example, uh, the state of Massachusetts reports out on four and five year graduation rates under kind of an assumption or rubric that's like five years is worse than four, for example. And mm-hmm. I don't think they collect six year, six year data. And so, um, rightly, the superintendent school committee are going to ask, even if we're totally on board with this vision for an individualized and personalized support, uh, and a transition that might take four to seven or eight years, um, 
how do we make that legible to the state and make sure that there are ramifications kind of at a governance level? And, right. you know, fortunately, through the Innovation School legislation, and I think through conversations with the State Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, that's possible, in part because I think they recognize as well the increasing relevance of adult-based education. And they recognize a lot of the problems that the kind of treatment mentality where you're pushing a lot of folks out the door who aren't necessarily prepared creates it, it hands that problem off to some other stakeholder. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it's, it's very important for us to be able to clearly articulate uh, why things are taking a long time and what you're getting for having it take a long time. Right. Because ultimately, at some point, for example, you're fundamentally saying, would I rather somebody graduate you know, with a middling experience but graduate in four years, or would I rather them take five or six years with a great experience? And uh, it's all about what the difference between middling and great is and how that connects to their their outcomes down the line. Well, I mean, it'd be um, really I think fascinating it's to see. generalize about that be, uh, because, you know, there are all sorts of reasons that people take longer to, to go through school. And just to choose one, I think, very important category that often gets left out is uh, special education and the type yeah. of transition support that people need is, are, are very, very contingent on what the specifics of their, their situation and their needs and their family support uh, are. And I think that generally public schools aren't in a position to handhold in that transition. And unfortunately, there isn't really infrastructure to support that. And I think we'll be in a position to support that uniquely. So I think there are lots of advantages to right. um, moving this to something that looks more like a stewardship relationship, if I can call it that. Very interesting. So that, I mean, that'll be, that'll be I think, followed very closely and, and really interesting to see how it plays out. In my mind, I actually wasn't, I understand the the people who are having challenges and it's taking them longer to get through school, but there's also the flip side where people are actually flourishing and they are almost in a way enjoying what they're going through and they're going, they're getting A minuses, but they think, you know what, I can actually move that needle up to an A plus if I just take another right, year or right. something. So you're, you're, you're almost right. Right. So, I mean, that that's a good motivation or good emotion to have, but in a way you don't necessarily yeah. want people to keep thinking, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just refine this a little bit further and, uh, and, and keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, I mean, that's a great example of something that's very contingent because I think there, by and large in our experience, um, you know, I think one of the characteristics of youth is that they want to grow up. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I think that for most people, uh, they're, they're keen to move on to the next chapter, whether that's a job or a college. Um, I do think you're right that there are some people, you know, who get really comfortable in high school, especially if they're succeeding. And whether it's because of uh, family priorities and constraints or it's because of wanting to avoid that discomfort, they might want to stay there. But I think it's uh, two things that are important to keep in mind are that one, that probably won't be true of most of their friends. And I think that that really changes the experience when their social experience is kind of passing by. I think that's quite a big pressure. But then the other thing is to keep in mind that um, these conversations about how long graduation takes happen with their family. So uh, the question of whether or not somebody's sticking around because they're afraid of a next step or because they're, you know, basically acting like a perfectionist at, at the scale of their high school career is, is one that we can actively raise in the same right. way that you might say that somebody is struggling to articulate uh, rigorous projects or who's consistently avoiding a certain subject area the same way that that calls for mentorship and support and potentially conversations with somebody's family, I think the, the case that you're sketching out would require the same, even though obviously it's a somewhat more comfortable situation yeah. coming on the heels of success and right. um, on the heels of struggle. So one other thing I wanted to be sure to cover with you is uh, obviously from my perspective or some of the things we've, uh, we've been doing at, at Triumph is thinking about what kind of space 
is yeah. most conducive to this kind of learning. And so I'd be very interested to hear what what is, and I know you've been doing some work already on on the the facility yeah. itself. What what does this look like? Yeah. What 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 does the environment look like? And what what thinking went into however you designed it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so broadly, I think the the kind of highest order bit is that going back to what I was mentioning earlier, which is that we're taking a lot of inspiration from creative work environments. And mm-hmm. so in many ways, as we've worked with architects or designers, the conversations we've had have been, no, don't start with schools. Let's mm-hmm. think about, let's think about other places where people do work. Right. And so, uh, digging down one level, what that will mean is that, you know, the way the school is organized is not by grade level, but by cohort. So each year mm-hmm. we're going to enroll 30 to 40 young people between the ages of 13 and 15. And that cohort is kind of the organizational unit for the school. So that cohort sticks together for the years that they're with us. Mm-hmm. And associated with each cohort, there's basically one big space, so a couple thousand square feet, where people are coming together for everything from lunch to group seminars or programs, basically any group experience is happening there. And then surrounding those big spaces is a large collection of small offices or study carols. So mm-hmm. things like a conference room big enough for three to five people. Mm-hmm. And each group of three to five young people are kind of assigned one of those spaces and they take charge of designing that space and setting up that space. But that's kind of their office space. I mean, obviously, as people work, they might work in those offices and they might work in those big rooms. But the idea is that overall, kind of the cadence of the day is pretty straightforward. People come in, some people come in early and eat breakfast, and then we have morning. And during the morning, um, with younger folks, we'll be designing and running these programs and seminars that look like more structured interdisciplinary programs like those we've run in the past. And as time goes on, um, those mornings will probably be dominated more and more by things that you know might be best understood as independent studies, but, mm-hmm. but where people are working on projects of their own design. And then lunch happens. And then there's the afternoon. And during, during the afternoon, there's a mix of people working on projects, following up on the work that they may have started in the morning. And then again, depending on the person and how old they are, what are the other types of opportunities they're participating in, might also involve them going out into the community, participating in internships, co-ops, um, potentially you know, sports at the local other high school, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mentioned that because the cadence of the day also means that there'll be just a couple times when the group is coming together as a whole. So when the day starts around lunch, if there are group programming experiences, um, but that generally people come together and then disperse to do the work because mm-hmm. most we, it's very important for us to provide large contiguous blocks of time for people to actually do their projects, to do their work. And that um, as long as we have space that accommodates that, you know, originally, once upon a time, we wanted to have space where every individual young person had their own office and we just weren't able to find, yeah. find space that accommodated that. And so what we've ended up with is kind of this overall structure that happens to be embedded in what has ended up being, I think, a really great opportunity and development. Uh, so, there's a, what's currently a vacant school. It's been vacant, I think, for the past 12 years or so, just outside Davis Square in Somerville that the city recently sold. Mm-hmm. And one of my colleagues um, basically pulled us into the redevelopment because some friends of hers that she's in a band with, she's in a few brass bands, and one of her <laughs> bands has a significant group of older folks in it. And some of them had decided they wanted to form a buying co-op to set up an aging in place community. They didn't want to go to a nursing home or a retirement community. And so they had found an architect and a developer to redevelop the school into uh, initially the idea was mostly residences and a restaurant and a park. Mm-hmm. And they reached out to us as potential co-tenants. And over the past couple of years, we've managed to work with the developer to kind of knit together what I think is a pretty cohesive vision for a space that'll have us, that'll have a park, that'll have a restaurant, that'll have 
artists like work studios that have open and affordable units still have seniors nearby um, in a way that's really related, interrelated. And so just an example of that is that, you know, even before we got involved as an amenity for the artist live work units, the developer had included space for uh, a maker space for a community workshop of some sort. And mm-hmm. so uh, we had a, had a lot of experience both um, working in such spaces, helping schools and other organizations to design and set up such spaces. And so when we heard that, we're like, oh, can we you know, take over the design and management of that in return for taking, taking it public, basically? And so what's ended up happening is that now we're in a position where that space will both be a community resource, not just for the residents, but for the community at large, but also a, a resource for the school. And so I think there are lots of opportunities for that type of permeability that school normally finds, finds quite challenging, both kind of spatially, because generally nothing else is happening right next to a school, um, but also, you know, schedule-wise and temporally, where generally, you know, school schedules and work, work schedules don't align nearly as much as they do, um, as they do for us. And so I think right. there will be a lot of opportunities where the space and the schedule and the staffing model and the curricular model let us draw on a lot of really interesting resources that hopefully mean that when you walk into the space, uh, it'll feel like a workplace that happens to have young people there more than it'll feel like a school. <laughs> obviously, that's an ideal. Like, I, I doubt we're going to hit that, but that's the, that's the vision. So I'm having flashbacks to um, a conversation I had with, uh, with Chris Mallett at, uh, at Northeastern, and he's talking about different campuses they have in different yeah. cities, and they, they commingle their students with, uh, within companies. Right. And so it's a very college-esque uh, description That's that right. uh, that you're you're, you're describing. So, so not to keep yeah. going to the to the negatives, but that no, sounds very very attractive and very nurturing and very yeah. uh, uh, enriching. Um, yet you're going to have somebody very quickly say, "Well, what about the dangers? What about the the you know the sure. the, the time you have um, uh, some incident and you need to have a lockdown and all the things that you know really are a sad That's reality right. of 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 our educational yeah, world now do you have plans for all that when you've got this permeable yeah okay yeah we yeah we do so it's, it's interesting because i feel like a lot of the design work we've done especially over the past year and a half or two but over the past few years basically comes down to uh taking these initial impulses for what we think a good learning environment looks like and figuring out what are all the interfaces to regulatory or legal or cultural concerns that often um preclude people from even considering this type of thing. So mm-hmm. this is a perfect example where people are like, yeah, this sounds great. Obviously people should be able to mingle, but does that mean that you vet all of the uh, residents mm-hmm. for, does that mean you do background checks on all of them? Does that mean you only do background checks on the people who are volunteering, but they will be in the same hallway? Like, how do you know who's in the building? If kids are going to be going off to an internship, how do you keep track of who's on campus and who's off campus? And there are lots of very practical realities that come up that by and large, we feel like we've been able to address through uh, operations through a mixture of tools or systems that we propose. So for example, we were able to work with the developer to say, hey, we'd like to be in charge of putting in place the security system that governs access to the development, not just for our kids, but also for residents. Mm-hmm. And what that lets us do is it lets us make sure that whatever system we have in place not only does something like uh, tells us who's on campus because of all of, because all of our kids will have a phone and I can go into the details of how we're using that to know whether somebody's on campus, but it also lets us put something in place where we'll have contact information for all the residents and we'll also have some biographical information for them and we'll be able to uh, plug all of that into a system that helps with background checks and that the wow. developer was open to having that be part of somebody's lease application. Mm-hmm. And it's just like there are lots of 
implementation details where no one thing is impossible, but I think that um, if you haven't carved out the time or the relationships to actually work on them, if you don't decide, no, I think that we can make this work, on its face, I think it's easy to end up concluding, oh, we better just start, quote unquote, a normal school. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's you know, really quite a fortunate position that we're in because I think it's quite rare for somebody to be in a position where they can, how to say, kind of synthesize something from scratch. So normally you're inheriting a school or you're coming in as a new building leader or you're operating an existing school and you don't really have the luxury of saying, well, what if we could just close off that hallway? Or why don't we roll out a new security system, right? Mm -hmm. Like any one of those things might be enough for a quarter for somebody to focus on. And we're in a position where obviously we're not going to anticipate all these types of issues, but we're in a position where we can anticipate enough and kind of we're in a vertically integrated enough environment that we've been able to, I think, address uh, certainly all the ones that we've been able to come up with and all the ones ones that the district's been able to come up with. But uh, I think it's it's inevitably going to be an organic process. And I think that's part of why we're very grateful to be starting so small and growing so slowly because I think the, the nature of these types of problems when you're talking about a cohort of 30 to 40 is quite different than when you're talking about a cohort of 300 to 400. So. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, you know, I asked that question thinking that, that it wouldn't be a very good answer. You've got a, a great answer, and some of it depends on <laughs> some of the new technologies that are available, some of the, you know, the, right. the, the things that, yep. that not just you have, but the students have uh, in their yep. pockets. Uh, and that's, yep, um, that's right. That's right. That's, that's fascinating. Wow. Um, I, I, we could go on and on and on. There's, I actually have one last yeah, question. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, we've sure. talked about a STEM program, but I think you could describe, describe yeah. this as a STEAM program. Where, where, is, sure. a, where yep. is the arts part of this? You mentioned it's, it's about um, storytelling as one of the dimensions, so I'm thinking of that as kind of an art-like right, part right. of the brain. But it, you know, if I want to play trombone, sure. I want to play saxophone, I want to play piano, yeah. do, I, yep. do I get this from, yep. from you guys or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So absolutely. So it depends on the nature of the, the arts. But, you know, before it was called Pottera Studios, it was called Summerall Steam Academy. That was mm-hmm. a name that we created for a variety of reasons I'm happy to go into. But, um, you know, to us, what's really important to, about STEAM isn't the fact that science and technology and engineering and arts and mathematics are in it. It's that it's interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. So it's that, you know, normally if you go into a normal, again, creative work environment, the work you're doing is often quite interdisciplinary, but nobody thinks of it like that. Nobody set out to design an interdisciplinary project for you to work on this quarter. And nobody said like, you know what, and I think it's a good idea for you to work with people of different ages than you and people with different backgrounds than you. Like that's just a natural part of creative collaboration. And so coming back specifically to the arts, what's most important to us about the work that people do is that it's hard for them uh, and that it matters to them. And something else that, you know, we focus on as a matter of our mission is growing the scale of project, specifically the time scale of project that people tackle. But something that naturally comes up when you say that it's important for something to matter to people is that basically there are only kind of a few buckets of reasons that people do things in our experience or that people get interested in things. Uh, There's one big bucket that's social, right? Mm -hmm. That's about like your crush is interested in it, your friend is interested in it. If you do it, you get to hang out with your friends, right? There's another bucket, which uh, I think for lack of a better word is, is aesthetic. Is mm-hmm. that the thing that compels somebody about a story or a puzzle or about math it doesn't necessarily have to be its usefulness, but it can be um, really about some sort of aesthetic experience for right. them that maybe they don't even have language to unpack. Or it can be uh, about 
solving a problem of some sort. And that's often interpersonally situated. Sometimes that's about starting a business and sometimes it's about helping somebody that you care about. Maybe it's a family member or maybe it's solving a social right? And I mentioned that because um, I think a big thread throughout a lot of those contexts is finding a way of expressing yourself. And a lot of the expressive impulses, at least in our experience, that people have in their programs push them towards the arts. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily have to mean uh, the arts practiced as a technique. So like to use your example, when somebody finds that they have an impulse towards expressing themselves, they don't naturally say necessarily, oh, where's the nearest trombone? Mm-hmm. And part <laughs> of our responsibility is to kind of introduce them to and expose them to both tools and opportunities and communities or forms of artistic and creative practice that might satisfy or, or amplify those appetites and experiences that they might not know about or might not think that they can do. Mm-hmm. But for us, what we decided was very important was that we focus on a small enough set of fluencies that we could be really good at them as a school. So in some ways, we kind of envy a place like, say, Juilliard or the Iowa Writers Workshop, where they can say, you know, we're just about this, this mm-hmm. one thing. And by virtue of that, they can be really excellent at it. However, as a public school, and for a variety of other reasons, it's important to us to be able to accommodate as a broad a set of interests and backgrounds as ap- and aptitudes as possible. So we instead chose these two tool sets that we felt like kind of spanned a, quite a large space of backgrounds and interests and aptitudes, that there are lots of reasons why you might come to want to make something with a computer or tell a story broadly construed, whether that's videography or marketing or branding or traditional narrative and prose. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are lots of examples of things that don't fit within that, that either are part of a traditional high school experience, like varsity football, uh, or are linchpins of creative communities, like playing music. Mm-hmm. And so uh, to dig into some of the logistics a little bit more, in addition to the programming that we offer, which will inevitably be individualized or personalized, so somebody might say, you know what, I'm interested in painting or computational art or the trombone. Our follow-up for that can't necessarily be great, one of our staff members will help you do that because there's no way that we can guarantee that you know, our staff members can play trombone. But what we've decided to do is to basically set aside a stipend uh, to support people's projects and work. And that for students, that's roughly $1,500 per student per year. And that stipend funds a mixture of project supplies when they're making projects, but can also act as a stipend to basically gain access to other services or people who can support their interests. So, so, for example, if there are a handful of people who are interested in brass music, there's nothing preventing them, and obviously we can talk through the details of how we support this logistically, from batching together some part of their stipends to say, great, can we bring somebody in to twice a week run a music class around brass? Right. But that's, you know, I think a very different experience than a group of friends who say, you know what, we want to start a band. And between what's online and the music that we listen to, we're comfortable trying to be self-taught for a while. But what we need is we need instrumentation or we need an amplifier Mm -hmm. or we need somebody to help us with the basics of audio engineering. And so, again, kind of maybe it's a cop out of an answer, but we come back to this kind of stewardship model that says a handful of adults responding to a handful of young people who have some resources and access might be able to, on a very individualized way, on a very small scale, support people in undertaking and getting exposed to a lot of the not just arts, but a lot of the activities and creative communities that normally don't fit within traditional subjects. Wow. So it's not like anybody ever said, yes, we should have orchestra, but we shouldn't have hip hop. And people didn't say, yes, we should have conic sections, but not anthropology. So I think there are versions of your question, not just for trombone, but for all sorts of other yeah, exactly. kind of creative yeah. endeavors. And so the, the system we tried to end up with is something where 
there's enough coherence to the shared experience that everyone's getting better at it and we're also covering the things that we need to as a school and that, that line up with the experiences that people might have in college or career. But there's enough kind of slack or kind of room for responsiveness or individualization that we can say, and we can support you in taking trombone lessons or right. starting band. But inevitably, it's going to be, a, it's, it's not going to be, a, I don't know how to say it, like it's not going to be a universal experience, but I don't think school is that a universal experience either. I right, think right. Of I mean, a lot of people in band doesn't yeah. come close to their experience to, in, to uh, doesn't come close to the experience of picking up a guitar that their roommate has in college. Right. right. So we're, we're kind of advocating for a different and more flexible set of trade-offs, but they're definitely trade-offs. So that's that's really interesting. They, in, in my mind, I'm sort of seeing a core circle. You know, when you use the term faculty, you think of a core circle that is yeah, helping this right. group, and then there's a, a you know a broader circle that's almost like an on-demand or by by-demand yeah. budgeted uh, uh, group of people who come in to nurture whatever talent it is that, that the that's group right. wants to do. Um, and, that's right. okay. and you can use the budgeting as a, as a way to sort of say, well, is that really important to you or not important to you? So it's, yeah, it's, exactly. It's no, that, that's right. That's, that's totally right. That's, that's absolutely right. Wow. Well, as I said, I, we could, I think we could go on and on and on. It will be, um, you know, it may make sure. sense to touch base, uh, in a few months. Are you still on target for this to yeah. open in about a year? Is that right? Yep. Yep. That's right. So we, uh, we just signed our lease and we're now, um, beginning to do hiring and onboarding and, Hopefully by the end of this fall, we'll have our first team assembled and we'll be doing their onboarding while we run enrollment outreach programs for the course of the next year. And then hopefully come fall 2018, we'll be uh, spending all day every day with our kids. That's fantastic. Well, well, we will definitely keep in touch. And again, maybe have a follow-up conversation as you learn more about some of these things. Uh, but I've been uh, impressed with every every answer you've provided. And I guess that's one of the reasons why you guys are heading down this path and t- taking the as I said at the beginning, you know, there's the significant challenge yeah. of not just sort of complaining about what's there, but creating something new <laughs> that is, yeah. you know, really going to try and address this. So I, I wish you best That's of luck it. in those, those endeavors. And it's, it's fascinating you. to talk with you. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.